1: This is to establish that we are actually here and there are other people here. (laughs) Um, We're going to be talking about The Merchant of Venice today, and we are specifically going to be talking about the amazing production they're doing up here. If you think you've seen Merchant of Venice, and you haven't seen this production, then you haven't entirely uh, seen all the ways that it can be. I I will say, just not to give away anything, but I think it's the only production of Merchant of Venice which opens with Uptown Funk, the Bruno Mars (laughs) composition. I've seen that used in Troilus and Cressida, but not in Merchant of Venice. So uh, let me tell you who's here. Tina Packer uh, was the founding artistic director of Shakespeare and Company, the director of this current production uh, of the Merchant of Venice, and she's many, many other things besides. She's been with us before, her book, Women of Women, Will was sort of foundational document for us when we were doing our show about Romeo and Juliet, when that was being done by Darko at uh, Hartford Stage Company. I should say also, so we researched you intensely, Tina. Yes. Were you actually in Doctor Who, like the original Doctor oh Who? Oh, God.
0: <laughs> but th-
1: but yeah, Not the original,
0: the second S- one. Patrick, 96, 96 Patrick Troughton was yeah. my Doctor Who.
1: But you're like nerd royalty.
0: Yes, I am. Yeah, uh,
1: there's like people who just When I was touch
0: teaching you. at MIT, I never got any respect until they <laughs> suddenly discovered I was a Doctor Who no. lady or whatever right. you want to call them.
1: And then they made you um, like a dean or something. Yeah, probably, yeah, yeah no,
0: then, then, I th- then they started listening to me. There are
1: people who are completely unreasonable on the subject of Doctor Who. They are. are. Uh, Jonathan Epstein uh, is with us. He is the amazing uh, Shylock in this production. It's, I think, not the first time he's done Merchant of Venice. In fact, you've done it five times? This is the fifth. (laughs) He is a 29-year veteran of this company and uh, has acted in more places than I will name right now because then the show would be over. This production of Merchant of Venice, by the way, is running through August 21st, and you should get up and see it. It's a really fascinating kind of postmodern way of approaching this really controversial material. But the material, and I think we, we need to just get right into this, mat- the material is, is ever going to be controversial. And I, I call your attention to an incident in uh, 2013 uh, when Tribune Media Services published in a number of its newspapers a crossword puzzle uh, in which the clue was Shylock, And the answer, because they're always looking for those little three letter words in crossword puzzles, was Jew. And uh, within hours uh, of it appearing there, Abe Foxman of the Anti-Defamation League had written a letter in protest Calling this clue insensitive, demanding an apology, part of his statement was perhaps the puzzle authors were unaware of the use of Shakespeare's Shylock character throughout the years as a vehicle for anti-Semitism. Selecting Shylock to elicit the answer Jew demonstrates cultural ignorance and an extreme lack of sensitivity. Even if done inadvertently, such a linkage perpetuates classic anti-Semitic stereotypes of Jews as evil and money-hungry. A lot of Jewish scholars responded to that saying it was a silly complaint. I mean, Shylock is a Jew. It doesn't really make any sense to complain that he's identified that way. But it, it's, Tina, it's an indication of just how loaded up this material is, that even in a crossword puzzle, in a pretty harmless-sounding generic context, it still lights people's fuses.
0: Yes, and one reason why I wanted to do it with Jonathan again, so I've only done it twice, but when I did it before, Johnny was Shylock before. So, one reason I wanted to do it with him again was that I knew that we would be on a fairly even keel with this very painful material. And it's very difficult working on painful material with actors that you don't know or don't trust. So, th- that tale you just told. It legion, you mm-hmm. know the, Colin, the, it's, it comes up in every way. I also want to say though, in this production we're not just examining the anti-Semitism, we're examining the semitism in as much as Sherlock in many ways is the most attractive character if I can put it like that we're examining the sexism uh, we're examining because we have five nationalities four different ethnic groups we're examining all the different racial disputes that come up and it's a a society built on slavery which most productions don't normally bring, bring out but which I do. So it's not just the anti-Semitism. There's whole layers upon layers, and it's all a comedy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) supposedly. Right. And Mm -hmm. we want to talk about all those things, uh, things,
1: including the slavery. And I agree that in this production, Shylock is the most attractive and by far the most charismatic character. In fact, I became aware, I I think Shylock's only on stage five times. I started feeling Shylock-deprived because, Jonathan, you are... So magnetic that when you're not on stage, I'm thinking, well, "When's Shylock coming back? Yeah. <laughs> uh, when's Shylock back on stage?" And so, let's talk a little bit about how how you form that role, how you form your approach. And I guess, Jonathan, do you start by interrogating Shakespeare at all? Like, what's a Jew to Shakespeare at that moment that he's writing? What's a Jew in that environment? Or are you skipping over that to something else?
2: Well, I, I think I start with the language, and I interrogate myself. The principle of the way we work is is only me up here, and so I'm an absolute authority on how Shylock feels. He feels <laughs> like I do, mm-hmm. and when I say this, I feel this. That's authoritative, mm-hmm. and then Tina will say, "Well, can you think also about this?" And then I'm then my feeling might change, but I'm speaking out of a condition. I'm speaking specific language out of the condition I'm in, and the the act of speaking the language changes my condition, so. The, the history of Shakespeare's relationship to the Jews is something that happens when we're talking about it. When we're actually in it, it never occurs to me. I'm in, I'm in the event in relationship with my scene partners and the audience and speaking this language, which is tremendously evocative language. And honestly, as with a lot of Shakespeare, certainly King Lear would be another, certainly Othello's another, I would imagine Juliet's another, the act of speaking it, the big risk, is that you become overcome, so overcome with the depth that the language gets to in your spirit that you become, become unable to speak. Mm-hmm. So one of the big tricks with someone like Shylock is actually keeping the language moving because you can be so made so breathless by the experience of it, and that becomes even stronger when there's an audience there who are also made breathless by it.
1: We should maybe just, uh, I'm assuming we don't have to worry about spoilers with Shakespeare.
0: No, I don't think we're going to (laughs) worry about that. So maybe
1: we should just quickly remind ourselves and remind everybody else what it is we're talking about here. So we have kind of a a group of people who appear to be somewhat privileged people, if not one percenters. Antonio might be a one percenter. And so you get these privileged people. One of them, Bassanio, uh, needs money for an errand of love. He tries to get it from his friend Antonio. Antonio has to borrow it from Shylock. He thinks he'll have no trouble paying it back, then has some reversals of fortune. Meanwhile, Shylock has set these terms that include the famous pound of flesh. Meanwhile, there's this other thing going on, this other plot going on involving this woman whose dead father has set up this bizarre game show basically for <laughs> for suitors who have to pick the right box. And and it all a lot of it culminates in this trial scene where in fact, Portia, the young woman, uh, has inserted herself as kind of a magistrate in the guise of a, of a man, and Shylock is trying to carry out the compact that's been made. That all gets worked out. I think most people know how. And then there's this sort of other afterplot that goes on after that. Maybe we can talk about that as well. But, Tina, I want to come back. Just, I just want everybody mm-hmm. to remember what's going on here. But I, I want to come back to that question of interrogating Shakespeare. Do you care what Shakespeare thought about all this?
0: Uh, yes, I do. I do, and I don't know that I always know, but of course I always think that I know what Shakespeare's thinking. And I'm reminded that uh, you know at this point in time when he was writing it, there had been the huge trial of Dr. Lopez who was the Portuguese Jew now Christianized, that was Elizabeth's doctor and he got put on tra- trial for treason and then executed, which I think was absolutely an anti semitic move on the on behalf of the Earl of Essex who went after him and he was an easy target. So that that was very much in the forefront of Of people's minds. Marlowe had written The Jew of Malta, which I think is a really is a very deeply anti Semitic play, and it was very popular. I think that was in people's minds. And I think Shakespeare, in fact, while using some of the tools of what was going on at that time, was dead set on showing an opposite picture. And I think Shylock himself, if I can say this, ran away with the play. I don't think <laughs> that Shakespeare knew that Shylock was going to dominate the play so much. And what happened was, as he started writing him, he became more and more alive in Shakespeare's imagination until he's got all the best speeches, all the best moves, and, uh, and so on, and some of the most intricate psychology in the play. I don't know that Shakespeare set out... Because when you're an artist, you don't kn- you have vague ideas. You're you're responding to things inside yourself that kind of of set off bells. You don't all you don't know how it's going to come out by the end. And I don't think Shakespeare knew how it was going to come out.
1: You know, Jonathan. In, in some ways, Shakespeare is very interested in people who feel to match up with cultural expectations at the moment. I think you could probably put Othello in that category too. Mm -hmm. And so my reading, and particularly in this production, what my reading on Shakespeare was, or, or at least some voice that's inside this play is saying, well, here's the way things are. And Shylock has to put up with all this crap. You know, I mean, he gets kicked, he gets spat on, he gets treated like a dog. And there's some kind of cultural expectation in Venice at that moment that, yeah, okay, you don't have to like it, but that's the way things are, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, you can hate it, but you have to deal with it. And he basically says he is the one Jew among other Jews who are maybe going to process this a little bit differently, and yeah, maybe live with that as background radiation. Mm-hmm. And he just says, no, I, I am not going to live with that as background radiation. In, in, in that sense, he's, rather than the typical Jew of that moment, the atypical Jew of that moment.
0: And a hero.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, but I think he would have lived with it. I think he's content. I think he's made a, a, a Faustian deal, which is I'm going content to be spat on and be treated as a third-class citizen, except commercially I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> and I'm going to make my gold and silver breed like, like ewes and rams do, mm. so I'm going to have power in that way. And I think the cost of it is it, that that act dehumanizes him I think it probably makes him a less compassionate father, and the, he breaks when his daughter leaves. Mm-hmm. And to me, what he realizes is, I, I think he imagines that he's been betrayed, mm-hmm. not by just by his daughter, but by Antonio and Bassani. He imagines that the whole thing was a conspiracy to get his, you know, to trick him out of his money and his daughter. But that I think, certainly for me, what happens to me is. I become terribly ashamed of the deal I made which which ultimately cost me my daughter in this way mm. and rather than repenting and thinking how can I be a better father or or how can I make this up uh, I attack somebody mm. which really is very very uh, human rather than confront my own weakness I attack the person who's really most with whom I have the most in common and this is I think a commonplace that we don't Think of all the time the people we hate the most mm-hmm. are the people who are, at least in certain ways, most like us. Right. So Antonio's the other outsider. Antonio's the other person who's made a kind of Faustian deal. He's supplying his lover with the money to go and seduce s- somebody else, but at least it keeps him involved. You know, it's a, it's a very Jewish thing to have done. <laughs> 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 and and Shylock, instead of confronting his own Mistakes attack someone else's.
1: We should say or remind people that Antonio, as at the very beginning of the play, sort of talked about a melancholy that he has. That's I mean Shakespeare can't quite I think bring himself to say what he's saying, but that there's a melancholy that has to do with his feelings for Bassanio, the, the the young lover who will eventually court portia and you know in my synopsis i left out jessica so uh, that is the other thing that happens is that shylock's daughter runs off with a non-jew and takes quite a bit of his ducats so sort
2: of hits him in two different places at once uh, the heart and the pocketbook just uh, while you're mentioning antonio in that context it's very interesting when you look at the very beginning of a shakespeare play you know who's there Mm. nay answer me That's the beginning of Hamlet. Who's there is the question. Mm. And Antonio poses this question, what stuff is made of, meaning his sadness, Mm. whereof it is born, I am to learn. And that's the nature of the play Merchant of Venice to me is that we're learning and learning more and more about ourselves and more and more about each other. And he understands that... uh, that the process will be painful, as we understand that the process is going to have some pain in it of of seeing or put putting on a play like this. But I am to learn is the, is the quest of the play, and it has the noble. Uh, you experience the the sense of nobility that the word quest invokes.
1: Uh, so many places I want to go. First of all, I want to remind people we're up at Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, and to that point. I think if you went out on the street, maybe not the streets of Lenox, where people are highly sophisticated and and, and living, you know, within a stone's throw of Shakespeare and Company, but out on the average street <laughs> and ask people who is the Merchant of Venice, they'd say Shylock. Yeah, you know, I think most of people course. they don't think it's Antonio. And
0: it's the first thing Portia asks when she comes into the courtroom, yeah. which is the, which is the merchant here and which the Jew. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know which one is which, right. and you have to be pretty dense not to know which is which. But she doesn't know which is which.
1: I want to talk about money for just a second here, because uh, there's a lot of ways to look at the money in this play. And we keep trying to do this show about cultural interpretations of the 2008 financial crisis, Mm -hmm. where Americans for the first time maybe in a long time, started to see money as dangerous. Mm. So people started making movies like The Big Short and uh, 99 Houses and documentaries B- about, about the, uh, the, the financial crisis. And, you know, this is kind of The Big Short. Uh, one thing that I read, I was reading this uh, book, it's not out yet, it's called Shakespeare in Swaziland by Edmund Wilson Lee. It's about how Shakespeare's been produced in Africa over the years. Mm-hmm. And when they, do, when they do Merchant in Africa, you know, the president of, the first president of Tanzania took it upon himself to translate Merchant of Venice into Swahili. That's Mm -hmm. how important he thought it was. But at that time, there was... Julius
0: (laughs) Neneri. I remember. (laughs) I remember well.
1: (laughs) You know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, How would you remember a thing like that? How would you
0: remember that? Well, how could I remember that? Because I remember always when something like that happens, and we have somebody in the audience right over there who does Shakespeare in Africa as well. So, Mm. Bella Merlin, who plays Nerissa, Mm. also knows about this world so yeah and so
1: certainly at that moment anyway the at least according to scholarship the jewish part of this play wouldn't be read the same way simply because even at that time there wouldn't have been that kind of a population Mm -hmm. and that 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 nairi and and others who are basically trying to incorporate incorporate some marxist ideas into the transfer from a colonial government into independence, mm. are, but they're much more interested in this. It's a play about money. It's right. about people who attempt to profiteer and create wealth out of nothing. And they, they don't really care that it's somebody Jewish, right? It's a play for them about money. I don't know if you want to elaborate. You're nodding, <laughs> that means you do.
0: <laughs> no, but I, 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 I don't particularly want to elaborate about Nereri, but yeah. he was a school teacher before yeah. he became a Marxist, Before, so he actually had been in the classroom, so I just want to say that. I don't want to elaborate particularly about him. What I do know is that at every turn Shakespeare has been used by different right. countries to actually illuminate there. And the one I like the best, the story the best, is about, you know, Cesar rewriting The Tempest Mm. and Caliban, you know, at the end of the play set in the West Indies, Prospero uh, is trying to find a name for Caliban. And Caliban says, well, you've stolen everything from me, including my name. Why don't you call me X? And Malcolm X (laughs) took his name from Caliban's X mm. in that particular translation. So I feel as if Shakespeare goes out over the world, and that's one of the reasons why Shakespeare should be the world book rather than the Bible or the Quran or any of those <laughs> other things.
1: So, but Jonathan, if you were to take all references to Jewish identity out of this play, now it's a play about Goldman Sachs, really, in Venice. It's about people people who maybe have no business complaining because they're already pretty privileged anyway. I mean, the mm-hmm. people who are doing the complaining, but they still they don't like it, right? They don't like it that this guy can jerk them around at the level of money, even though he's not really selling them anything or making them anything.
2: Honestly, it's a failure of imagination. the The argument comes between taking interest mm-hmm. and venture capitalism. Mm-hmm. And venture capitalism is legal. If I invest in your voyage, I'm entitled to a share of the profits. Interest is a way of diversifying investment. And without it, what you get is class structure and stagnation because if you have no money, you have no way of ever getting any money. Whereas if you're able to invest at a fee, then you're able to create uh, capital. So this uh, it's a very odd distinction which the in the elizabethan world was being bent all the time mm. there would be phony ventures mm-hmm. which were really a way of charging interest and there were some people who charged the legal level of interest which i think was either 4 or 6% but it was in fact venture capitalism so y- y- yes but what happens is it becomes personal uh, so it's not quite in that sense it's not quite goldman sachs because it's so hard to To distinguish the personalities. The other (laughs)
1: thing that you were just describing, the phony ventures, that does sound like Elizabethan credit default swaps, basically. Yes, exactly. We do have to take a little break here. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back. We have a wonderful conversation going and there's a lot more of it to come. So stay with us. Uh, Yeah, yeah, Lennox. All right, we're live from Lennox, Massachusetts at Shakespeare and Company. We're, we're in a rehearsal room as opposed to the you got to go to the theater. Amazing, amazing renovation of that theater. It is a very it's an exciting place just to sit and look around you and then when you go to Merchant of Venice which is running through August, August 21st is that how mm-hmm, long it goes? That's that? right. August 21st I mean uh, the actors sit down with next to you <laughs> <laughs> in, in the audience so uh, you get visited in all kinds of interesting ways um, so we're talking about Merchant of Venice I, let's hone in a little bit more on the real problem so Tina the night I was up here last Friday night there were people sitting behind me who were pretty clearly Jewish and who just weren't having it you know Mm. they just weren't having it and at the end I heard them talking among themselves and they were saying no this is about a bunch of one percenters you know who are essentially taking advantage of a Jew and you know who, whom they've already tormented for most of his adult life, and this is supposed to be some kind of happy ending at the end, where everything he has in the world is taken from him, and he's fed this very uh, bitter cup of wormwood. And so, I, wh- why are we even here? <laughs> you know, I mean, they just weren't having it, and mm-hmm. and that's not an uncommon reaction, right?
0: Well, but Shakespeare wrote an Act Five. Shylock is not in Act 5. That's the end of that portion of the story, and now we're going to resolve what the lovers do, which is the framework he calls it, a comedy. And the lovers include his daughter, Jessica, and how is this relationship with her Christian husband going to resolve, which is a very bittersweet kind of resolution. How is Bassanio, who is clearly bisexual, how is his relationship with his now heterosexual partner but both his, for his partners you might notice were very, very rich, so there seems to be a common factor in that. Mm. How is that going to resolve between these two people? And how is the bigot uh, Graciano and the lady-in-waiting Nerissa, how is their relationship going to resolve? So Act Five is meant to be about the resolution of those lovers and what it is that Shakespeare's written about that. And there's no easy answer for them either. I just want to say in our production, you know, the last moment is Shylock's. Mm -hmm. It's Shylock's and Jessica's because he's so powerful you can't help but think about him as you're going into act five. You know right at the very end of this what we hear is as as, um, Lorenzo and Jessica are struggling with how do we make this relationship work and they come to some kind of understanding that there is maybe a place you know, in the expansion of who they are, they can make it work we hear Shylock singing the Nidre, so so, but it's almost in Jessica's imagination rather than Shylock being there, and that puts a whole different spin on the play. Did they do that in Shakespeare's time? I doubt it, but we don't know because we don't know what the music was in Shakespeare's plays, except in a couple of instances, because the orchestra was improvising with the plays all the time, so we don't know what they, they wrote. It's yeah. interesting
1: because uh, a number of people, as they hear that, I had a call completely different reaction to that than the person who was with me and as far as I could tell most people who hear that and there have been sort of other versions of this play where things like that have been attempted and most people assume that it means that Shylock is dead. Uh, and it never occurred to me that Shylock was dead. I thought no this was he's dead in his soul. this is, this is the cost of all this happiness mm. that th- that in fact he's been killed you know in an internal spiritual way that he's had to die for all, for everybody else to have these chances to be happy. Uh, I don't know. What's, how do you process that? that
2: I well, uh, I just want to go back to your colleagues there. They had exactly the right reaction, mm. which is I'm not having it. Mm-hmm. Here we are back in Downton Abbey land, mm-hmm. but I can't enjoy <laughs> the romance of it or the wit of it because there's this huge injustice that everybody's pretending didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So for when people say, well, the ending doesn't work, no, the ending works great. Mm. What you find is that romance doesn't please you when you know it's founded upon injustice and cruelty. So the response they had was a really uh, an outstanding one. They just thought, <laughs> well, no, it's the play's fault, but actually it's... What they were experiencing, I think, is exactly what we'd like people to experience, which is you can't have romance if it's founded on injustice. And it's not just anti-Semitic injustice. It's other kinds of prejudice that create injustice and imbalances. Your response to Shylock, yes, I think he, you know, I, 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 I like that very much. The Kol Nidre is a very odd piece of liturgy mm-hmm. because it's not a prayer at all. Mm-hmm. It'll affect a Jew who was raised in a traditional household, as I was, probably more strongly than any other piece of the liturgy except perhaps the mourner's Scottish. But notwithstanding that, it's not a prayer. It's something that's put in the liturgy to exempt you from having to forswear yourself. Mm. It specifically says, vows that I take having to do with my relationship to God and so forth, from now until next year, don't count. Mm. And the tragedy of it is that it moves us so much because it's been such a necessary part of our culture since the 11th century when it was written our word is only good up to a point and for the people of the book that's a, that's a tremendous tragedy the idea that what I say is only good up to a point it isn't true all the way down to the center um, that it's in this sense, negotiable. That's the the tragedy of Kol Nidre. But you're quite right. It's not a it's not a mourner's prayer at all. It's said yearly on on Yom Kippur, the right before the Yom Kippur services start. Many productions end with a mourner's prayer. In traditional Judaism, someone who leaves the religion is mourned as if they were dead. But the idea of mourning Jessica really never occurred to either me or Tina, I don't mm-hmm. think mm-hmm. Uh, this seems much more appropriate.
1: First of all, I love the way that you just said this. Yeah, yes, you're not having it. You shouldn't be having it. And I think that's driven home by who the rest of these people are. I mean, you know, we've all managed to various ways to slight them in our description of them. To me, they're these trust fund punks that I see in Chelsea or the Lower East Side kind of running around, eating at really expensive restaurants and living in $10,000 apartments that they're paying, they're, that their parents are, I mean $10,000 a month, apartments that their parents are paying for. That's, that's who I think I'm seeing. And just that, the kind of party atmosphere that you set up at the beginning, Tina, right. seems to suggest that yeah, too. No,
0: I, I I agree with you. What I, I do think is, though, even even those people, you know, in my socialist background, I just wanna I just wanna damn them. I actually think Shakespeare is saying they too have souls. They too still have to work out how these marriages are gonna work. Mm-hmm. And although, and what else can we do other than laugh? You know, and we need to laugh in order to move on. And, I, you know, I'm not without hope that Jessica and Shylock might not be reconciled and that he might not move and she might not move and they might, in fact, be pioneers in multiracial marriages or whatever it's called. <laughs> yeah. So you're saying <laughs> if,
1: you, if you prick Brooklyn hipsters, they also bleed. Yes, I am. But they I bleed, am. They, they bleed I am. Much though. The way, I, you know, much though, like
0: though, you know... I, I, much though my prejudice is, is otherwise. Yeah. But I know... I it would know be fun to
1: try each one of them. Yeah, yeah.
0: But but, but I also know the actors who are playing them. Mm-hmm. And I know what stupendous human beings they are. Mm-hmm. And and each of them has a life story that they bring into the arena of playing those parts. So I know the soul of those characters lies with the actors. And I love those actors and and so for me there's always this kind of dual reality going on all the time there's the artist who's playing the part and there's the part and one of the great things about about theater is you constantly get go deeper into who people are than you do in everyday life mm-hmm. and therefore you can see all kinds of human beings with a much much greater humanity on stage than you do in your exchange with them, especially if they're doing something that you don't like.
1: You know. I think the other thing that I, I started to think about in this production, and I think, Jonathan, it's, it's in your mind too, is, I mean, there's, there's a Trump joke. There's a Trump joke in the production. We hmm. won't tell you what it is, but there's a Trump joke. And I laughed. Uh, but I also started thinking, well, yeah, so who's, who's a Jew now? You know, who, who in 2016 is what a Jew is to these characters? and I'll just let you pick up that baton and run well with certainly
2: certainly I would think an, an immigrant from any of the Arabic countries would be a Jew in the sense that you mean mm. I would say that the Native American in America is a Jew in the sense that you mean he's someone or she's someone who's categorized in, in a way that blinds us to seeing who it is we're speaking to and my, I directed uh, Macbeth this year, and my Lady Macbeth is native Amer- part Native American. God, it it hurt mm. to, you know, to see how much passion uh, Danielle Ranella, a lovely young actress, how much passion and intelligence and versatility she had and how rapidly she's categorized in some other way certainly an african-american actually the first shylock at shakespeare and company wasn't me at all it was a wonderful african-american actor john douglas thompson uh uh, who did it in 94 directed Mm -hmm. by my uh my not quite yet wife ariel bach in Mm -hmm. the the oxford court and it was it was really gorgeous it was done outdoors Mm -hmm. his knife was a butter knife he was scary anyway
1: uh. <laughs> I, I read a piece, Tina, about a guy. I think he became president of Drexel, but he talked about teaching Merchant of Venice. And when he first, and he over 20, 25 years. Mm. And so when he first teaches it, starts teaching it, he's got pretty much all white classrooms, mm. people who are very even familiar with that mm. idea, the stereotype of a Jew. They've heard that stereotype, mm-hmm. not, and not, I mean, as something mm-hmm. maybe they, at family gatherings, they've heard that. So they, they, they're, they're okay with damning Shylock, they're okay with coming down on him very hard. And and he, this guy said as his classrooms got more diverse through the years, the more it had all kinds of people mm-hmm. of color from all kinds of different national and racial backgrounds, many of whom were literally familiar with having been mm-hmm. spat upon or kicked or mm-hmm. treated like dogs. Mm-hmm. And and that he, s- he said that his job changed. Like initially he had to get these rather privileged white kids to understand Shylock's point of view. Mm-hmm. He said his ch- job eventually transformed into getting this incredibly diverse classroom, which understood immediately how to sympathize with mm-hmm. Shylock, How to, to get them to do the other thing that you just talked about, mm-hmm. which is to see some other point of view besides that one.
0: And it was one reason why I wanted a multiracial, multicultural cast, was because I wanted to know what the actors would bring to what it was that we were doing and I just want to point out you know the, the actor who plays Lorenzo is African American the actor who plays Lancelot is African American but one is a light skinned black man, one's a dark-skinned black man. And so as they were working, one of the things that they discovered was they're both in love with Jessica, and that this kind of rivalry builds up between them, and then towards the end, when Lorenzo is really fed up with Lancelot's messing around... He gives him an order, and Lancelot, you know, absolutely rebels. Mm. And we go into this power struggle that's very brief, and you might... I mean, it it kind of stops the play for a moment about what the hell is going on. But you suddenly see that Shakespeare has written a struggle between a Mm -hmm. master and a servant, Mm -hmm. which is standard commedia kind of uh, theatrical. But because of the actors who are playing it, it gets translated into an incredibly potent really heart-rendering moment as as Lorenzo shames Lancelot and makes him do what it is that he, um, he has him do. And then because Lancelot's the clown, after almost smashing uh, um, Lorenzo's head in, he then skips off, which kind of puts it back in oh we're in the theater again so there's things like that the fact that you know Antonio at the top of the play says he knows not why he's so sad but the first thing Portia says which most people don't know notice is my little body is a weary of this world she's as sick at heart as Antonio is and for a lot the same reason not having a person that she wants to love and she's kind of tearing her skin off her And so they recognize each other in a very peculiar way, the two lovers of Bassanio, if I can put it like that. So these are all things that the actors brought out as they were rehearsing this i uh, w- all i would do is you know kind of drop in the text and see where it came out with them and uh, it's one of the reasons why i hope we're going to be doing shakespeare plays forever because it actually allows us to bring up all this stuff that w- we don't necessarily talk about in our everyday lives
1: the other person who's thinking a lot about that is shylock and this guy this teacher said that when he had the more diverse international yes uh classroom hmm. when they get to the part where Shylock says, Well you have many among you a slave yes. you know who you treat like a dog or a mule because you purchased them and I purchased this other thing and blah blah blah. You know, and they go, Wait a minute these yeah. students would go, They have slaves? Yes. And they're they're taking some kind of moral high ground with this guy? Yes. And they have slaves? <laughs> and and I think Shylock I mean, that's what he's saying too,
2: right? right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
1: and it's why
0: we put the slave on stage, so you it actually is manifested there, you know. And it's for me one of the most powerful moments. Of course, as we've been playing it, it has been the production from hell as far as outside events are concerned so at every turn every time there was a new murder every time another policeman was gunned down every time a new somebody was shot in the in the parking mall we had to stop and talk about it because we needed to process it enough that we could go on You know, and every time there were there was, you know, overt symbols of racism out there, we just had to stop. And the terrorist attacks, you know, it was it was hard. On the other hand, it was enriching what we did all the time as well. If I can put it like that, I don't don't want that to sound callous, but it was informing us so uh, and people had different reactions to what was going on so it was very much a part of our our rehearsal process
2: certainly mm-hmm. when we when we when we undertook it the role of the immigrant in our society was very much at yeah. the fore yeah. and so the uh, the idea that we need to wrestle with what it means our society has never not been enriched by an immigrant population from irish in 47 to you know to Italians to the Jews and two different uh, influxes to Hispanic to Vietnamese. You know every b- and, and the, the African Americans building
0: the country and never being acknowledged for it.
2: And so this play, which is about the role of the outsider in society, where where it's clear that the outsider is essential to the society and still ostracized to the extent to which they are, that was really essential. But there are lines now when we see how much violence begets violence lines like, the villainy you teach me, I will execute, which are so sad that it's actually hard, it's hard for me to say that even just sitting here, very, very hard in the context of the production because it's such a sad truth Mm. that we do what we're taught. You know, and if we teach people the way of the gun, then they learn the way of the gun. You know, so it's very, very current and present.
1: We, we're going to take a break right now. I do want to say, once again, we're at the beautiful campus of Shakespeare and Company. They're incredible theater there. You ought to come up and see Merchant of Venice. They've got lots of other plays up here that I have not seen, but I would like to come back and see more of them. This is a great play. I mean, it. we're talking about the very serious and painful parts of it. It manages to be serious and painful, but also a lot of fun. There's also sort of great music and singing. and <laughs> I just you really You're at a really good party that you realize has kind of a nasty thing at its core, Uh, but you're still at a really great party. Uh, Anyway, we'll take a break, we'll come back, we'll talk more about that party after this. They're so good about clapping, look at this. (laughs) So here we go, everybody ready? Three, two, one. Live from Shakespeare and Company and this great audience of extremely attractive Berkshire people. We are talking about Merchant of Venice with the people doing Merchant of Venice, Tina Packer, uh, who is directing uh, Merchant of Venice up here, Jonathan Epstein, who is uh, incarnating Shylock up here, and we have one little more segment to go tina i know just uh, as we were rounding out the last segment there you had something else you wanted to say about shylock as teacher
0: yes because one of the things that uh, that jonathan does which i think is one of the best elements of the whole production is that he's actually teaching us all the time so uh, so in the you know he's got a couple of famous speeches that he's doing but he brings it out to the audience he's actually asking the 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 ju- the whole audience you know Why is it that you are feeling about me like this? You know, and so the hath not a Jew eyes speech all goes out to the audience uh, as well as the people that are surrounding him on stage and what you see as Shylock makes his way is that he's the principal teacher on stage so all his rhetorical um, persuasion comes in the form of questions and you really are forced to ask yourself those questions which he principally puts to the audience you know he's the one who's moving us into and so when we say was shylock anti-semitic i don't think he was because he was making shylock his chief teacher just in the way that his speeches are structures
1: Well, it's also that whole idea. Once again, where you show it and who you show it to, it changes its spots a little bit. So, uh, one thing that I discovered was the Nazis really liked Shakespeare, uh, and they they were fine. They were encouraged the staging of Shakespeare. They didn't like this play, and by 1938, they had banned it, removed it from libraries, and they didn't like hath not a Jew eyes because they really didn't want. That speech that they, right. they, they couldn 't cut it because, as we said, Shylock only comes on stage five times mm. they didn 't think they could cut it uh, they didn 't like the speech, and they also didn't like the intermarriage uh, that those two things made them they thought this was this very radical play about Jews getting out of control mm. um,
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, and then the, Germany's blessed with one of the great literary accomplishments ever, which is a really great translation mm. of Shakespeare, the Schlegel translation. When I was a younger actor, and I would get stuck on something, I would often go to the Schlegel because my German in those days wasn't bad, mm. and I- reading it in German would help me understand. Sometimes the German is actually stronger. In uh, Shylock says, "You knew mm. none so well, none so." You knew is a really hard thing to say, and in German, it's ihr wusstet." Mm-hmm. which is a combination mm-hmm. of a growl and a hiss and w- I wish I could do it but <laughs> <laughs> <they> would <go laughs> Gesundheit I <or laughs> have no idea what I was talking about but y- yes you're right the, the pro- they knew well that if you do this play you come out of it more philo-semitic than mm-hmm. you went in, mm-hmm. not more anti-semitic and it really doesn't matter how viciously you portray Shylock, he's the one, I would make a strong argument for Portia too, whose soul draws you in, especially mm-hmm. Tamara Hickey's this unbelievable actress playing Portia, and you get the, the, the predicament that she finds herself in, that she works her way through. But they were wise not to let uh, even uh, Jusus, which was a piece of propaganda, did them more harm than good. I'm happy to say.
1: We're nearing the end of our conversation, which I kind of can't believe. I feel like we just got started talking. But um, I want to just talk a little bit about what the heck kind of play is this anyway? I mean, we've got comedies. We've got tragedies. Um, this, uh, at least on its face, is co- is a comedy, mm-hmm. although a kind of a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. Although there's a guy with a knife threatening to cut, you know, somebody's vital organs out, which... I've seen all those Meg Ryan movies. That never happens <laughs> uh, in, in any of them. Um, so this, there are some other plays, Tina, that straddle, right? Yes,
0: yes. There are some other plays that straddle, but none straddle like this. I mean, it, he calls it a comedy. It, it was published as one of the comedies, and yet it is so clearly a tragedy. Uh, um, or at least the actions in the play all lead towards infinite pain in all kinds of ways, mostly in what happens to Shylock, but not just in what happens to Shylock. Everybody ends up with big questions about their life. So I think he thought, I'll write a comedy. That sells really well. I'm going to say the things I want to, and I think Shakespeare... It's a kind of 94. It's written 95, 96. Maybe it's at a moment before he writes the great tragedies, and I think this play leads him towards the great tragedies. I think by writing this, he suddenly was able to get the breadth of what it was that was possible for him to do. But it's a so I say, (laughs) I say you know it's a tragicomedy comedy mm. uh, um, and 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 the two by by us playing them so it's so extremely, I think we throw the audience around a bit in in where their emotional response can can land. In fact, it can't land.
1: I mean, there are other plays like Measure for Measure where there's yeah. a lot on the line, right? I mean, there's mm. bad stuff can happen to people. Yeah. And, but a lot of those plays seem to be the later plays, right? You know, towards the end, he started thinking, well, things don't have to be a tragedy or a comedy. Yeah. I can do A Winter's Tale or something like and that. And
0: where do you put Troilus and Cressida? You right. Know? And, and so I, I think he liked uncategorizable plays. I think his own mind led him there. You know, his, his, his inquiring mind led him there,
1: and uh, but that leads to a question, Jonathan, about the uh, ending. Okay, so that we talked a lot about the ending already, and the way that this particular production ends. Although it doesn't really end there with the Nidre because the next thing that happens is this very it's m- dance. M- it's merry it's music dance. strikes up <laughs> yes, and everybody dance. gets happy again and does this m- maybe my favorite curtain call I've seen in the last five years. It's a really <laughs> it's great it's curtain essential call.
2: that you dance. Yeah. You know, there's only one contemporary description of a Shakespeare play performed by his company Mm -hmm. only one a swiss guy went yesterday afternoon i and my company went across the river to the straw roof playhouse and we saw a play which i won't name right now uh performed by 12 or 14 men dressed as women also and at the end they danced very harmoniously together that was a guy's description of william shakespeare playing julius caesar (laughs) what he remembered was the dancing so if they danced in julius caesar they danced all the time Mm -hmm. and it was essential that, one di- that, that a dance is circular, a dance has a beginning and an ending, but it keeps going, a dance has to do with music, and a dance has to do with giving back to the audience the excitement you experienced from having them there in the first place. And so I'm so happy. I always end my Shakespeare plays with dances, and I learned it from Tina, <laughs> who always does the same.
1: But I think it also says something about an ending, too. I mean, one of the things that we as modernists of 2016 are encouraged to do is to th- what happens next, you know, how, how will yes. things work out yes. for, for Jessica and Lorenzo, how are things going to work out for everybody but I don't think that that's what Shakespeare does right, I think no. the, things are a snapshot you know, and, and the, the camera goes off right there and that's where it stops.
2: Yes, I think all really good actors are very polite when people ask, Well what happens to Shylock because all <laughs> really good actors know well, the play's over <laughs> 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 no, nothing else happens, that's it that's what you get, you know I did want to say one thing. You're talking about tragedy. It's tragic in this sense that in a, tra- in a great tragedy, I'm aware that I'm in a room with three King Leers, uh, uh, <laughs> Dennis Krausnick is here, Ava Lindenmeyer is here, and, and I've done Lear, that the, the central character, in fact many central characters, become completely human just a second too late. And what redeems them is the fact, not that it's too late, but that they do become completely human. And I think that there's a moment of deep humanity for Shylock when Antonio says, "I'm going to give you half the money back. If I can have the other half in use, I'll pay you interest, and I'm going to give it to your daughter at the you know And there's a moment of real and then Antonio springs the big trap, and that poisons everything, but mm-hmm. there's a moment of really great humanity. Uh, right right near the end, and it's just too late for it to be enjoyed. The same thing, I think, happens to Lear. The same thing happens to Hamlet. Certainly the same thing happens to Brutus. And I think, obviously, happens to Romeo and Juliet as well. And it's a redemptive moment because it's a moment of such great humanity.
1: So at the beginning of this conversation, I, I was really sort of... as I, I was driving back from here. So we had a long drive back from Lennox down to Hartford. And I, I was thinking... You know, I understood those people sitting behind me who I think, you know, if I had them here to ask them, would say, no, don't do this play anymore. Don't do it. Hmm. Never do it again. There's just, in this world that we're in, you know, Steven Spielberg gave the commencement address at Harvard uh, this year. He said, you know... I thought anti-Semitism was over or almost over. It's not. 20,000 Jews have left Europe in the last year. You know, in, And so there are people who say, look in this world, this dangerous, volatile world. Th- don't do this play. But, Tina, you know, I feel like the conversation we just had is a conversation about doing this play.
0: Yeah. I, well, I think, I think it's the greatest instrument to bring up the conversation and the fact that people have different points of view, the fact that their life histories are different, that they're bringing to the question, and the fact that we talk about it. How else are we going to get through anti-Semitism or sexism or anything except by talking about it? You cannot bomb people into submission or to changing their thinking.
1: I have to do some quick curtain calls. You guys either can bow or not, but Jonathan McNichol was the producer of the show, is the producer of this particular episode of this show. Jonathan, Mm -hmm. you are getting a curtain call. (laughs) Our senior producer, uh, Betsy Kaplan, she's on the board making this whole thing sound great. Betsy Kaplan. Our interns, uh, Adriana Smith and Esther Shitu, also are here uh, with us, helping us. So thank you very much to all of you. And I want to thank this wonderful panel. And thank you, audience, for coming out here. Give yourselves a big hand. Thank you. All that stuff. Great show. Thank you.
2: This is great. To talk to someone who's actually seen the play. You yep. have no idea how rare <laughs> that <laughs> is.